Within each of us, there is an intense need to feel that we belong. This feeling of unity and togetherness comes through the warmth of a smile, a handshake, or a hug, through laughter and unspoken demonstrations of love. It comes in the quiet, reverent moments of soft conversation and in listening. I love the message that's contained in the in that uh, video bumper that we play at the start of the uh, of the of the, of the message time. Um, and I got to say, I experienced that uh, this past week. I wasn't able to be here with you all last weekend, and as I alluded to earlier, and um, I got so many uh, emails and phone calls and handwritten uh, notes and cards uh, sent to me by you. And I just want you to know that I felt incredibly loved. And I just want you to, I just want to say to you, thank you for your support. Thank you for caring about me. Uh, thank you for, for praying uh, for me this past week. But tonight, this is what we're going to do. We're launching into what really is uh, our series finale and what we've called uh, the Neighboring Series. I don't know if you can say it uh, from memory yet. I'm curious if anybody can say from memory uh, our, uh, our theme verse. It's Matthew 22, uh, verses 37 through 40. This is where uh, the neighboring series came from. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what we've tried to do is really wrestle with that, uh, the big idea that we've been rallying around, that we've tried to rumble with uh, throughout the course of this series has been contained in our series thesis. The real question isn't, who is your neighbor? It's, are you a neighbor? And my hope is that over the course of this series and the few weeks that we've had together, that it's just become really, really clear that it's impossible uh, to uh, disentangle or distinguish our response to this question from our response to Jesus. It's impossible to disentangle our response to this question from our followership of Jesus. And over the course of this series, the things that we've attempted to make clear are things like this. Neighboring is about identity, not proximity to people. Neighboring is about building bridges, not about building walls. Neighboring is about paying forward what's been done for us by Jesus, not paying back what's been done to us by other people. And there's many more wonderful things that we could say in this subject of neighboring, but there's one more thing that we've got to say, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be challenging. I believe it'll be inspiring. And I want to kick it off with this question. What do you think Jesus was like at a party? What do you think? Now, I, I'm not going to answer this question just yet, but really what's most important isn't how I answer this question, it's how do you answer this question. And tonight, it's my intent by the end of this talk to give you everything you need to be able to wrestle this question down to the ground. And believe it or not, how you answer this question goes a long way in shaping what it's like to experience you. Call me crazy. But how you answer this question goes a long way in shaping how you live the Christian life or whether or not you want to live the Christian life. 
But tonight we're going to look at an event, uh, really a short passage, an event from the life of Jesus that might not even be a blip on the radar for us, but it was like a tectonic shift in the life of at least one person and probably more. We're going to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 9. So it says, Jesus went from there. There is a town called Capernaum. It's not where Jesus was born. It's not where he was originally from, but it became his home base. It became his hometown. As Jesus went from there, or Capernaum, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now this reads like an all-of-the-sudden decision, doesn't it? Like two people who just got married after going on one blind date. It's not like that, all right? It's not like that at all. If you'll allow me to skip over a lot of the historical analysis, the fact that Matthew was sitting in a tax collector's booth tells us a lot about the kind of tax collector Matthew was. He was the kind of tax collector that would have been personally involved in and and, and intimately familiar with the business dealings and transactions in his town. He was highly engaged because he and Jesus lived in the same town. And because he's the kind of tax collector that would have been very much personally engaged in the business dealings and the financial dealings that were going on in that city of Capernaum, it is reasonable for us to suppose that he would have looked into Jesus for tax reasons. And it's very likely that that would have transitioned into investigating Jesus for personal reasons. This was not a spontaneous, foolhardy decision. It's very likely that this was well-researched and well-thought-out and a decision that had been building for some time. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So real quickly, to recap, make sure we're all on the same page. Jesus invites this guy Matthew to follow him. Matthew jumps at the chance. Seems like later that night, Matthew throws a dinner party to celebrate Jesus and this new life direction that he has. The Pharisees, who are Uh, religious leaders in the community, they disapprove of the crowd and the people who Jesus is with. Now why? What's the problem? I think it's to our advantage to kind of see things from their perspective before we hiss at the Pharisees and just kind of write them off as the bad guys. It's to our advantage to make sure that we know what they knew. And if we could see it from their perspective, I think instinctively we would agree with them and not Jesus. If we could see things from their perspective instinctively, I'm not saying we'd be right, but instinctively, we'd probably side with them and not be on Jesus' side. Because here, here are a few facts about tax collectors that are important to know. Tax collectors, they help the rich pay less, forcing the poor to pay more. You know, just for funsies, let's imagine that Rochester was a city in the Roman Empire. And let's pretend that our annual tax bill would be $50 million, Okay. This is what would happen. A guy like Matthew and other tax collectors like him, they would accept bribes from the wealthiest people in town to lower their tax bill, right? And he would do it. But what he did not have the power to do was to lower the collective tax bill of the town. 
the Roman government would still expect that the people of Rochester are paying the full $50 million, all right? And so in order to collect the full $50 million, what Matthew would have to do is he would have to pass on that cost to poorer people who did not have the ability to bribe him and to purchase a lower tax bill. And so Matthew and other people like him built their wealth by helping the rich pay less and helping the poor pay more. He was not a good dude. He's not a good person. If you encountered somebody like that in our community, would you be emotionally passive? Let me ask you this question. What if you found out, if this is our situation, what if you found out that I asked that guy and I recruited that guy to come and be an elder in our church, and you found out that I'm going to parties at his house, what do you think about me? Are we beginning to see it how they saw it? Some more facts about tax collectors. They were useful to some, but unacceptable by all. Nobody liked them. They were officially excluded from the synagogue. Tax collectors were officially excluded from the Jewish court. To be clear, if you were a tax collector, you had access to power and money. But what you did not have was acceptance and inclusion. You did not have social standing and honor. And in an honor and shame culture, and this was an honor and shame culture, tax collectors were people of shame. And he were officially and systematically rejected and excluded from the foundational institutions of his society. What do you think that does to a human soul to be systematically rejected and excluded? Do you think that there's an amount of money that will numb you and heal you from that kind of pain? I think there probably is for a while. I think there's an amount of money uh, that will soften that hurt for a while. I mean, there, are, there are pleasures and there's comforts that money can buy that will, that will soften the sting of the red, hot, searing pain of rejection for a while. It'll bury it for a while. It'll suppress it for a while. But whatever amount of escape or numbing ability that money might have, it will eventually wear out and wear off. And I can't help but wonder, is that one of the reasons that Jesus talked about greed a lot? I can't help but think that this is one of the reasons that you will read about idols over and over and over again in the New Testament. If money is an idol, it's not the only kind of idol, but this is the thing that, that idols do. They're typically good things. There's nothing wrong with them, but we turn them into ultimate things by looking to them to make our lives and our sense of self enough. And the problem with idols in general, money in particular in this case, but the problem with idols in general is it's like treating cancer with a pain pill. It'll make you feel better at first, but that wears off. And ultimately, it does nothing to help, and it only makes the underlying condition worse. And the fact that Matthew was so eager to make a major life pivot and to follow Jesus and to leave all of that wealth behind, I think indicates to us that the allure of wealth was wearing off for him. It wasn't working anymore. And Jesus offered him something that was too good to pass up. Do you know what it is? I don't know if we're yet clear on what it was that Jesus actually gave him. Matthew 
obviously goes by Matthew, but if you read about him in other places in the gospel, uh, like the gospel of Luke, he's called by another name. Does anybody know what the other name is? Levi, that's right, there we go. Your Sunday school teacher would be so proud. He went by, he went by Levi. Now, it's not uncommon for people to go by two names. Back then, even today, I don't know if you guys know this, but I go by two names. Le my legal name is not Rick Henderson. Legal, legally, my name is James Patrick Henderson. And so, you know, at the bank, at the DMV, and at the airport, I'm James. Socially, I'm Rick. Uh, to my wife's crazy uncle, I'm Jimmy Pat. Okay? Now, Matthew Hatt went by a couple of names. Everybody else knew him, called him Levi. I'm sure his mama probably called him Levi. One biblical commentator suggested that Jesus probably gave him the name Matthew. And the fact that Jesus, if Jesus gave him the name Matthew, it would, be a, it would seem like it would be a big deal for Matthew to call himself that. That's why it'd be so personal to him. Do you know what Matthew means? Matthew means gift of God. When all the honorable people said you're despicable and despised, when all the honorable people said you're an extortionist and a traitor, and all the honorable people label you as rejected and unwanted, Jesus said to Matthew, you are a gift of God. Can we let that kind of simmer for a second? That Jesus said to this man, you are a gift. And this is the question I want to ask us. What do you think that God thinks when he thinks about you? What do you think that God thinks when he thinks about you? Do you feel safe enough to get vulnerable with that question? I hope you grabbed some notes when you came in tonight. I want to ask you to find a blank space on your page and write down what do you think your answer is to this question. What do you think God thinks when he thinks about you? I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to do that. What do you think God thinks when he thinks about you? If you have trusted in Jesus, I want you to know this is what the answer is. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's, what's this word? Masterpiece. Oh, come on, you gotta say it like you believe it. We are God's, that's a little bit better. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared and advanced for us to do. You know what God thinks? He thinks art when he thinks about you. He thinks masterpiece when he thinks about you. Now, some translations, they don't use the word masterpiece. They'll use the word handiwork. It doesn't matter what English word is used. It, comes from the, it all comes from the same Greek word, poema, which is where we get our word poem. If you are in Christ, he says, you are a work of art. You are a masterpiece. You are a gift. And I think that's good news. Now, I want to be clear about what the good news is and what the good news isn't. When we're reading about this interaction with Jesus and the way that he looks at people, let's make sure that we don't conclude the wrong thing. Here's what, the counterf this is what a counterfeit version of the gospel would say. Jesus finds the good in us. Whatever that is, that's not the real gospel. That's a counterfeit version. Matthew knew that, that Jesus didn't look at him as uh, that all of this was based on him being a good person. Matthew knew he wasn't a good dude. And some of us tonight, we might have come in thinking, well, this is what the gospel is, right? Jesus looks at us and he finds the good in us. What we're talking about is our moral standing, 
We're talking about our moral status before God. Jesus did not go to the cross because he was convinced we're all good people. This is the good news. This is what the gospel is. Jesus makes us good. And this is far better news than any counterfeit version. And this is about Jesus giving us his status of being good enough. This is about Jesus giving, his, giving us his status of being righteous. He loves us simply because he loves us. He values us simply because he values us. He wants us simply because he wants us. It is because of and secured by his goodness and not our own. And yes, that means there's nothing we could do to ever earn it or deserve it or work our way to it, but it also means this. There's nothing that we could ever do to disqualify ourselves from it. There's nothing we could ever do to lose it. Did you know there's nothing you could ever do to make yourself unlovable by Jesus because there's nothing we did to make ourselves lovable. There's nothing we could ever do to lose our status of good or righteous in Jesus' eyes because there's nothing that we did to make ourselves good or righteous. It is 100% and only a work of Jesus done for us and a gift of Jesus given to us. And if you have trusted in Christ, he says, you are art. You are a masterpiece. And I want you to hear this. Do you know that he looks at you and says, I'm proud of you? Do you know that? Do you trust in him? Do you know he looks at you and says, I'm proud of you? I don't think that it will be possible to resist the impulse to be a judgmental person. I do not think that it'll be possible to resist the impulse to judge other people if we doubt the truthfulness of the statement that he looks at us and says, I'm proud of you. I don't think that we'll be able to rest in or be at ease in our relationship with him if we don't believe that he would look at us and say, I'm proud of you. It will be incredibly difficult, maybe impossible, but it is incredibly difficult to delight in someone who you doubt delights in you. And Matthew discovered that Jesus delighted in him and he knew it wasn't because he was a good person. He knew it had nothing to do with his moral resume. When Matthew discovered that Jesus delighted in him, it changed his world. And what do you do? What do you do when you discover a joy like that? I'll tell you what Matthew did. He threw a party. Matthew 9, 10, it says this, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Matthew's being modest here. Luke talked to people who were there, and this is how Luke described it. He said, then Matthew, which by the way, that means what? Gift of God, there you go. Levi, who's also called Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Now this is the point in the sermon where you're probably saying, Rick, wait a second, I thought you said Matthew was unaccepted and he was rejected and that's the way that he lived his life. How is it there's a large crowd at his party? That's a good question. Well, Matthew's community were the people who were excluded from community. They were the rejected ones. They were the outside ones. They were the despised ones. They were the group that was the out group. And those are the people who loved being around Jesus, and Jesus loved being around them. I want to slow down, and I want to try to draw something into focus. I want to make sure that we see it. Let me ask you this question. Has anyone ever had to go to a social gathering that you really, you just didn't want to go? 
Has anyone ever said yes to going to a social gathering because it felt too awkward to say no? Men, I'm talking about the kind of place where we say to our wives, how long are we gonna be there? Because if it's two hours, tell me it's two hours now. Don't tell me 45 minutes. Because if I gotta go and I don't wanna go, don't trick me into thinking it's gonna be less than. This was not what it was like for Jesus. This is not one of those socially awkward moments where Jesus was backed into a corner and he had to say yes to something he didn't want to say yes to. It's not like he turned to the disciples and said, well, we're already here. We might as well stay. It wasn't that. It wasn't a pop-in. This was a massive party. This was a major banquet, and it took time and energy to prepare for. I don't know about you, but when I throw a party, it's easy and it's quick. Right, it's super easy, I, just three rules for me to throw a great party. Number one, make sure I have the wife's permission. Very important step. Then I just have food delivered from DoorDash. I'm not even going to the store. Step three, turn on the football game, boom! That is a party at my house. Not so easy back then. Without modern conveniences, there's no texting, there's no email. It took time and effort to get the word out to the whole crowd to make sure that they got there. Without modern conveniences, do you know how hard it would be to prepare food for that many people with all the stuff that they had to do to prepare food back then? It took a long time. This is what I want us to see. Jesus had all the time in the world to back out if he did not want to be there. Jesus was there because he wanted to be there. And so let's ask this question. Who was at the party? This is how Matthew describes his own guests. Tax collectors and sinners. These are people who are well known for their moral mess ups. These are people who are very comfortable with a lifestyle choice I would not be so comfortable with. I've got a son in high school and a daughter in college. Let me just tell you, a typical party with this crowd is not the kind of party that I want them going to. And just about any biblical scholar you read, just about any biblical scholar you read will tell you there were sex workers invited to this party. Now, I'm not suggesting, I'm not suggesting that Matthew invited them to work the party. They were his friends, and they were guests at dinner. And I'm not suggesting that this was a frat party, kind of wild debauchery atmosphere. I'm not suggesting that. This was a party that Matthew threw to celebrate a major life pivot and to introduce his friends to Jesus, who he's now following. It was a different kind of party. But let's don't sanitize the Bible into something it's not. A typical party with this crowd would be a party atmosphere that you do not want to have to explain. And you don't want pictures of it showing up on social media. Are you with me? And when the Pharisees, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They knew the reputation this crowd had and what a typical party would be like. And so this question is understandable, right? But you're a smart crowd. You know that this is not really a question, is it? Just because it ends with a question mark doesn't mean it's intended to be a question. They're not curious about Jesus. The Pharisees are not like, would you just tell me more because I just want to better understand Jesus. That's not what's going on. They're doing something that I call this. It's an accusation. Yes, it ends with a question mark, but it's really a statement. It's an accusation. And what is Jesus being accused of? 
that they don't even have the guts to go to his face. They go to his disciples and they basically are saying this. You know, Jesus, he isn't, he isn't conservative enough. He's too controversial. Jesus isn't reverent enough. He's too comfortable with compromise. Jesus isn't one of us. This week I had the privilege of going to a luncheon where Dr. Russell Moore was the speaker. Got to engage in a Q&A with him. It was pretty great. And the Q&A, he said something uh, that was really helpful. If you don't know who Dr. Russell Moore is, he's a theologian. He's the director of Christianity Today's Public Theology Project. And in this Q&A, this is what he said. He said, don't allow your allies to define who your neighbor is. Don't allow anyone. Don't allow any group. Don't allow the right people to define who you're going to be gracious and kind to. And if we're going to follow Jesus, and if we're going to be like Jesus, nobody but Jesus gets to define how we're going to respond to this question, are you a neighbor? There is no person and there's no group that's ineligible for grace. And there is no group that we won't group with. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this phrase right here, go and learn what this means, this was a common phrase that was used by rabbis in Jesus' day, and it basically meant this, you don't know what you're talking about, you need to go back to school, son. I want to make a couple of observations, a couple of observations about Jesus in this moment. Number one, Jesus wasn't threatened by rejection from the in-group for not rejecting the out-group. This is a beautiful thing about Jesus that we got to remember and we got to look at if we want to see him for who he is. Here's a second observation. Jesus was dying for a party. When Jesus said the statement, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He was quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And if you don't know Hosea, I want you to go tonight. I want you to go this week, and I want you to read the Old Testament book of Hosea like you are binge-watching Netflix. It is a dazzling story of a prophet and grace between him and a prostitute who he eventually marries. And for anybody who thinks that you read the Old Testament, God is like this grumpy old man. You have not had your heart pierced and your imagination expanded by the Old Testament book of Hosea. And when Jesus was at this party, I have no doubts that there were moments that he looked around and he grieved in his heart for the impact and the reality of sin that was in these people and impacting these people. But he responded with love, not anger. He responded with self-sacrifice, not condemnation. This week, I, I read a pastor I respect, and he said this. Typically, people aren't condemned into life change. They're loved into it. People aren't condemned into it. They're loved into it. And I can't help but wonder and imagine that there were moments that Jesus was at this party, and he was looking around, and he thought to himself, if you only knew that I came to give my life so that you could be invited and included and the ultimate party. The final pages of the Bible 
Heaven is described this way in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the heavenly party that Jesus is going to throw. And he added, these things are the true words of God. Jesus went to that party because with all his heart, he wanted those people included in his party. That's what the cross and the resurrection are all about. So let me ask you this question. It's the question we asked at the beginning of the message. What do you think Jesus was like at a party? Do you think he was uptight or do you think he was relaxed? Do you think he told jokes? Do you think he laughed at jokes? Do you think he had a scowl on his face or a smile? Do you think that Jesus made people feel uncomfortable or made people feel at ease? Do you think he complimented the food? Do you think he complimented the wine? Do you think that Jesus caused people to feel like they were looked down on, or do you think Jesus caused people to feel like they were seen? Do you think Jesus was aloof? Or every person that he talked to, he made that man or that woman feel like they were the most interesting person in the room. And when it came time for him to leave, do you think they were glad to see him go? Or do you think they thought to themselves, I can't wait till I have another opportunity to have a dinner with Jesus? What was Jesus like at a party? What do you think? It doesn't really matter what my answer is. What mo what's most important, what really matters is what is your answer? Because what you think Jesus would li was like will determine what you will be like. What you think Jesus was like will determine what you will be like. Let's end with this. That we are going to join Jesus in being for people. Let's join Jesus in being with people. One of my favorite Bible teachers said this, the Christian life is a feast, not a funeral. Let's live like it. And let's bring the party to as many people as possible.